My name is Victoria. I come from Ghanaian parents and grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I'm a painter turned entrepreneur on a mission to empower Black women to step into their genius and make an impact. I have a vision for creative women to feel confident and powerful and let go of all the limiting beliefs holding us back from going all out and showing up. I'm also the founder of the Kindred Creatives Collective, where I host dinners and retreats to hold space for Black women to prioritize self-care, build a tribe, and feel inspired. I want a world where Black women artists are celebrated, valued, and paid more. My goal for this podcast is to help women of color build sustainable and purpose-driven practices. Every week, I'll chat with a boss who's making bold moves in her industry as a creative entrepreneur. After hanging out with us, you'll feel empowered to build your own creative empire. Now let's start the show. Meet Lakeisha Leak, a self-proclaimed storyteller. Originally from Tampa, she's an artist advocate, writer, and an art administrator based in Chicago. She also works at the MacArthur Foundation in grant management. Lakeisha is known for her wildly popular publication with Candor Arts, How to Make a Hood, and Meditation on the Misconceptions of Black Bodies. Her years of curatorial experience as the executive administrator to Theaster Gates and at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York led her to want a slower pace and to start something new. L. Louise Arts Foundation was born. The foundation supports artists of color by providing professional and financial resources. Join us as we discuss Lakeisha's calling as a servant leader and how she helps artists create the narratives they want. Hey, Lakeisha, thank you so much for coming on today. How you feeling? Hello, hello, hello. I'm feeling good. Enjoying this sunshine. Yes. How are you? Pretty good. You know, um, it's always a good day when the sun is shining, especially since winter is like around the corner and it's like, I can't take it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's here. It is actually here. It is you're right. around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I try to give myself hope, but you're right. It's here. So I wanted to get into you. I'm so excited to learn more about your journey as a creative. And I know that you work more as an art admin. So love to get that lens to see that as an artist, you can go in so many different ways and have so many different careers and practices. So super excited to learn more about you. Let's jump right in. I'm curious to know what was your first kind of taste of art when you knew that this is what I wanted to do. This is like a space that I wanted to be around. Mm. So unfortunately, I don't have like this answer that dates back to childhood. I mean, I grew up in Tampa, Florida, and we definitely had museums, but art and culture you know, wasn't like a huge part of my upbringing in the traditional sense, like we would go to art shows and and things like that. But I would say actually, when I moved to Chicago, I moved here, I'm not going to say what year, because then I'll be dating myself. (laughs) Um, But when I moved to Chicago, I originally thought 
that I was going to be an architect, something I had started studying in Tampa. So I moved here, uh, enrolled in Columbia College Chicago in their interior architecture program. And with that, you know, we had to take different electives in the humanities. And so one of the courses I found to be really interesting was this community arts engagement class, which I had never heard anything about community arts engagement, but the the um, description sound really interesting to me. So in this class, we were learning about a lot of different, you know, arts, you know, community arts practices in Chicago and elsewhere. But there was one that stood out to me the most. And um, that was when we had Rebecca Zorak, who is an art historian here in Chicago. Um, she's taught at Chicago, and I think she's at Northwestern now. But at that time, she was doing research on the conservative vice lords and the work that they were doing on the west side of Chicago here in collaboration with the MCA. And so I was just really interested that a space that in my mind was like this kind of like whitewashed, very pristine space mm-hmm. now had these curators and programmers coming into communities, coming into the hood of the West Side and helping them to start arts programming. They were, you know, converting abandoned storefronts into like painting studios so that neighborhood kids could have classes. And that just like blew my mind because I had only known art to be this one kind of thing up until that point. And it just lit a fire under me. So that class actually made me want to change my major. I was already in, you know, I could have been done with my interior architecture degree probably in a year and a half. Mm -hmm. But, and I shared this with you, like I I changed my major a couple of times, but at that time I was the closest that I could have been to my degree. And I decided to change it to art history, like based on that class. I, I went to my advisor, Amy Mooney, who is still a mentor to me to this day. I went to her and I was just like, yo, is this a thing? Is, mm-hmm. is community art practice? Like, is there a longer history of this, a broader history of this that I can learn about? And she was like, absolutely. So I ended up changing my major based on that class. And then that kind of just led me, led me from there. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because there's always, when I look at my own life and other artists that I talk to, there's always a key person or a key moment that kind of shifted their path. And it sounds like Amy Mooney was one of those people, but I'm curious to know, were there other people who really inspired you along this path that you're currently on that really kind of um, showed you the possibilities of being an artist or even that was just like, girl, go after your dreams. You got this, you know? Were there people in your life like that who really inspired you? Yeah, and I shared a little bit with you about this, but my great-grandmother, who in Tampa, she was a writer, community activist by night and on weekends, and during the day, she worked, you know, in insurance. But this, there was this whole other part of her life that she was really passionate about and really leaned into for her community to be of service to members in her community. So she wrote a column for the local Black newspaper there in Tampa, Florida. But she also would have these sort of like salons, like that's the language I can give to it now mm-hmm. that I know what that's a salon so cool. is, right? 
but she would have these salons and just have older black women in her living room. They would play cards, they would dance, they would have conversations. And she did that, you know, almost every weekend. And as a child, just seeing that, I was like, oh, okay. So now that I have this language and this knowledge of what community practice is, I often say that she was the first social practice artist that Mm -hmm. I knew of. Um, Mm -hmm. And if, if you want to, you know, use that kind of language that we've grown to use in the field of art, social practice or community engaged practice, she was the first person that I knew of that. So I often take what she's done and what I know about her, what I can remember, because she passed when I was so young. But I often like kind of look at her life and how, you know, she did things to kind of model the impact and what I want to do going forward. So, yeah, she is in a lot of things that I do now, a lot of how I see the world and how I engage with people. I love that. And I could just picture her in her living room with her girls, just like having a good time, just being their dope selves. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You yeah. know, it's just it was just like a, a beautiful thing to see. Like if I could paint like a Carrie James Marshall painting after mm. that scene, it would be so dope. But I have no actual artistic ability. <laughs> Well, when we talked a little bit, you were saying how everyone has a creative side, and I truly believe that. And I think Mm -hmm. you absolutely do. I see that in all of your work, especially in your, you know, more community engaged work and and also your advocacy for artists. I think that you have a, a lens that's not only to serve and to support artists, but it's also to kind of bring communities together or bring people together. And now that I know that story with your grandmother, I feel like that's kind of like your legacy, like to bring people together and have community and, you know, be ourselves. I think that's really beautiful. Love it. Yeah, yeah. I think in a lot of Black women who are at least the millennial generation, we've, we've been more conscious, right, about tapping into sort of like ancestral kind Mm -hmm. of lineage and I think for a lot of us we can see our grandmothers our great-grandmothers great-great-grandmothers we can see them in ourselves and so yeah absolutely she's she's my G (laughs) (laughs) yes I love that so speaking of just you know things that kind of drive your work currently. Can you talk more about your work now? I know that your business is kind of named after your grandmother, Elle Louise. Can you talk more Mm -hmm. about what drives that business as well as just the work that you currently do? You have a lot of experience in curating and just program management. Yeah. What drives you? What's keeping you going? Mm, That's good. So As it relates to what I'm doing now, I always knew that that I was supposed to do something that was supposed to be bigger than myself. And I hope that doesn't Mm, sound arrogant. I get that. But from a child, right, like I always knew that whatever it was that I was going to do on this earth was not meant just for me. So my first kind of art job outside of college was working with the Astor Gates. And for those who are familiar with his work, knows that his practice, you know, he has a gallery practice, but a lot of 
what started him out to become really recognized was this community practice and the Dorchester Project. So I worked with him and I helped, you know, to manage him as a person in terms of like day-to-day admin, scheduling, things like that. But I also had the opportunity to support our artists in residence program. Mm -hmm. And so I was working with artists that were locally in Chicago, who were really interested in working with the archives that were there on Dorchester projects. And those were 60,000 glass lantern slides that were donated to him from the University of Chicago. Tens of thousands of architecture books that were donated from Powell's bookstore when they closed. And then this huge collection that just like ranged in kind of like genre type of albums from Dr. Wax when they closed. I think there were two or three locations. I'm sure someone from Chicago will correct me, but there were two or three locations of Dr. Wax that closed down and like each location had its own kind of theme. So whether it was like house music or world music or hip hop, he had all of those. And so artists from Chicago, but not just Chicago, but internationally and around the country were interested in coming and working with these collections. So my role really was to make sure that they got here safely and make sure they were cared for when they got here, had everything they needed in terms of like knowing how to get around the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. uh, knowing how to take CTA if they needed it, but also connecting them to different people around the city outside of the collections they were interested in who might be able to help them further this other piece of their um, practice. So I was really interested in residencies. That was the first time I really learned about what an artist residency looked like. Jumping ahead from there, um, I went to work at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and my position that I was hired for was to start from the ground up by creating this community engaged fellowship for artists who were in New York, who had strong connections to their communities um, in Harlem and Brooklyn, uh, and help them to create some sort of project or programming around being artists working in their communities, working with their communities. So they had resources um, in terms of financial resources. They had people resources in terms of access to people who worked at the museum and, you know, just really anything they needed. It was like a dream. And I thought it was like a dream job for me. Yeah, that um, but there amazing. was something It was amazing. It was kind of like unbelievable. You know, there was something in me that was like, nah, this this just ain't it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I did struggle a little bit being in New York. It's a different kind of mammoth in terms of like an art world. The New York art world is like when people think of art world, that's New York. Um, And so I'm coming from Chicago where it felt more communal, more easy to kind of like input yourself into a particular artist community, you had access to people and people were open to sharing and exchanging ideas with you. And it just didn't feel like that for me in New York. It felt very competitive. Um, mm-hmm. And one of that. my mentors, yeah. you know, would tell me, you know, even after I left working with the Aster, uh, she would tell me, she was like, you need to start your own thing. And I was like, no, I can't do that. You know, I've only been out of school X number of years. Like I have so much more learning to do. I have so much more uh, growth in knowledge that I need. But when I moved back to Chicago after that time being in New York, I kept having these dreams. And I didn't share this with you before, but I kept having these dreams that I was in my great grandmother's living room and like Mm. the living room was bare. 
the living room was bare. You know, there were like wood paneled walls and it was still that same kind of like funky colored carpet from, you know, from what I remember from my childhood, but there was no furniture. There was no other people. And I had had that dream over and over again. I had also had that same dream for another grandmother's house. So this is my great grandmother on my mom's side. And then I had the same dream about my grandmother on my dad's side and both have uh, passed away. And so, you know, I kept having those dreams and then, and one of them I heard, like, you have everything you need. And I didn't know what that meant for a while. Um, I had no idea what that meant. So I actually sat on those dreams. I didn't do any further investigating for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And then one day I just woke up and like the vision just, it just hit me. And I like typed up the whole vision, strategic plan, what the programs would be for this project that I launched last year called Eloise. And it's named, you know, to honor both of them. My great grandmother's middle name was uh, Louise. And then on my dad's side, my grandmother's name was Eloise. So okay. it's named, it's named to honor them. And they were both, you know, impactful in my life in different ways. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. You did. <laughs> I mean, that is so spiritually connected. I love that story because those dreams, man, they really like, if you pay attention, they really tell you like the direction you should be moving in. And I love that that kind of push you towards starting this project, Eloise, which we're going to get into more a little bit later, but just to pause for a minute and say, okay, <laughs> working with the Astor Gates, working at the Met, like those are really high powered positions considered in the art world. And as a black woman, it's sometimes hard to kind of get access to those types of high profile artists or spaces. And I'm just so curious to know how that transition was for you to, to be in those spaces and become part of that world. Because I know that some people feel like it's like, you know, door locked, you know, you can't get in, Mm -hmm. there's gatekeepers, which I think there's some truth in that. But definitely there's a lot of, there's more and more Black artists and administrators in those spaces. So I'm curious to know more about your experience and how it went and how did you navigate it? Yeah, you know, so with the Aster, my job, and it might have actually been in one of my early job descriptions, was to be a gatekeeper. Like, my job was to intercept emails, intercept phone calls. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was really what I did more than eight hours a day for three and a half years. Mm -hmm. And so it was it was a very you know, interesting is an overrated word, so I don't want to say interesting, <laughs> but it definitely was an eye-opening experience for me in terms mm-hmm. of the art world for a couple of reasons. So the first one was like, okay, here is this Black man that was born and raised on the west side of Chicago, who is now teaching at the University of Chicago, which is like, you know, yeah. Academia, academia. Absolutely. Um, who, has, who has these gallery representations that are in Chicago and in London, who's traveling all over the world 
Venice Biennial, Documenta, Mm -hmm. um, giving a TED Talk. Absolutely. Traveling to Australia to be a keynote speaker for something like all of these things that I had not imagined. I had never seen a black man do it. I mean, I've never seen a black woman do it either, but like for it to be a black man and to be in these different spaces, it was just like, it blew my mind at first. And all I could do is try to just like be humble in my position. My position was in support of him. I mean, that's what I was Mm -hmm. hired to do. I wasn't hired to be like out there kind of just like in the limelight. But, you know, I met a lot of amazing artists. Um, I met a lot of amazing curators. I learned a lot about like the different kinds of positions that existed within the art. You know, Mm -hmm. I knew there were artists. I knew there were curators and I knew there were artists art historians. So those were what I knew coming into working for him. But then I learned about all these other kind of like niche roles that you can have in in the field that you just don't always learn in an art school education or context. So I often say it was like I received an MA unofficially and being in that position. And yeah, it was just a great learning experience and it accelerated my learning. You know, Mm -hmm. there are certain things now that I have conversations with artists and I'll be like, oh, do you know of this artist? Do you know of this space? And it's like stuff that I had stored that I didn't even know that that I knew. And they're like, (laughs) how do you know all of this? And I'm like, "Uh, you know, I don't know. But yeah, that was that was very, very rewarding experience for me. And I will always be grateful that that was, you know, you're right. Like some people would, you know, scrap for a position like oh that. Oh, my God. Insight to something Girl. like that. Yeah. And so I'm definitely grateful for it. But then, you know, after a while, there were just other things that I wanted to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, and there wasn't really room for me to not that there wasn't room for me to grow but there wasn't room for me to kind of like stand on my own within that ecosystem and so it required me leaving and that was a very hard decision there were people like what are you doing you can't leave this is a great opportunity and you know I stayed as long as I could and then it was starting to become a little bit harmful and I know we'll talk about self-care but like Mm -hmm. at this point I was just like working 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 um I um because of my role as his you know pretty much his admin I had to be on you know Mm -hmm. and that that might be calls at like 2 a.m you know from Istanbul or or whatever and you know I was ready to you know have a love life or something like that right I hadn't (laughs) I hadn't done any serious dating you know in like three and a half years because no one no guy actually thinks that if another man is calling you at two or three o'clock in the morning that is not something else so (laughs) that was it was was just hard to explain right if you're not in the art world and just understand that that environment so yeah and then at the Met it was it was like I said earlier like it felt like all the things that I had envisioned that I wanted for myself it felt like all of that in one role but it it just didn't turn out how I wanted wanted it to you know it's a space like the Met not just the Met but like so many of these institutions were not 
made for people who look like you and I in mind. Yeah. And so it's not only that you have to think about uh, how you navigate and engage with your non-Black colleagues, but you also have people who have um, sort of subscribed to to a certain kind of like respectability that you have to maintain in order to be in those kinds of environments, Mm. black and brown folks. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, that kind of tension started to just like help me to see more clearly that I could not, I could not be my most impactful self and that staying in that I would compromise my own integrity. And it's just like not something that I was willing to, to do. Um, I got sick from working there just to be honest. Like I got sick. It was the first time I ever had an anxiety attack, you know, walking down fifth Avenue and I was like, all right, this is how I'm going to go out. You know, did I tell my partner that I loved him today? When's the last time I talked to my mom? Because, you know, this is it. I'm about to die right now. That's so real. (laughs) And so it was just, it just got to the point where I could not sustain and, and perception from external like viewers just was not something I was interested in maintaining. And like, if it looks bad that I quit this job, it's just going to have to look bad because I'm just like, I don't feel like myself. I, I started forming some, some really kind of just like psychological unhealthy kind of, yeah, just, it just psychologically, it, it was not good for me and it was starting to take a toll. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for sharing that because I know that that was kind of a personal moment in your life. And I think it's important to shed a light on not, not, not these institutions because that could be a whole other conversation, but about how mm-hmm. we should really tap into our bodies and what they're telling us and to do what's right for us but the perception and what everyone yeah. thinks you have to do yeah. what's right for you. And that's what I heard from your story that there were moments where you, you felt you didn't feel aligned anymore and you needed to move on to, you know, not only push yourself, but to feel centered and feel like yourself. And I think that's mm-hmm. what's key to really tap into those intuition that you already have when you know something isn't quite right but you, you stay there. Like I've done that so many times. You stay there for so many different <laughs> yeah. reasons until something happens and you're just like, this is it. I can't do this anymore. So I love that you show that because, you know, it's hard to follow those instincts sometimes and not keep doing what everyone expects you to do or what's easier sometimes to do. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing Yeah, that. and as a Black woman, no, no problem. And as a Black woman, right, we have these, Mm-hmm. expectations of us to remain strong to yes. like not be emotional and you know because we've seen it we've seen our mentors do it we've seen yes. our mothers do it we've seen our grandmothers do it but what we don't know is what they're dealing with inside exactly. because of holding those things and we don't know what they're struggling with are there health issues I'm sure there are mental mm-hmm. health challenges that they face but suppressing that stuff down is just like it's so toxic. It yeah, it, it manifests. 
Totally. Well, speaking of how you kind of dealt with all of that, I know you kind of hinted at this, but curious to know what are your self-care practices? What do you do to kind of feel good and centered and just kind of take a break? Yeah, so there are a couple of things that have been life-changing for me on this growth journey that I'm on. None of them have to do with art. And that was something, too, I had to ask myself, like, who am I outside of the roles that I've held within institutions or working with artists? And I couldn't answer it. The first one is that I have a daily journal practice. And Mm -hmm. it's not my idea, but I adopted this practice from um, this woman um, who has this thing called Start Today. Um, And so every day I get up and I journal. And so you write 10 things you're grateful for and 10 goals that you have that are forward looking. So you write the goals as though they have already happened. So for example, um, I am a homeowner. Um, I own a gallery space. Um, I give to black led arts nonprofits. So those are like some things that I write, you know, Mm -hmm. every day. Um, The other thing, or the second thing is that I started therapy. And this was something that I was considering when I was in New York, but I made all the excuses like I don't have time, I can't afford it, you know, I don't really need it, I can just pray about it. Uh, mm-hmm. but, That's a big one. Yeah, and so I just accepted that I did need help and I did need to talk to someone who was not connected to the things that were going on in my life that I was struggling with. So. Therapy, major key, and it is affordable for people who think they can't afford it. There are practices who don't take insurance that charge, you know, $30 for a session. So just Mm -hmm. putting that out there. And the third thing was, is that I stopped drinking. I realized that when I started, you know, first in the art world, so much of um, how we engage and build community is around food and around drinks. And Mm. so, you know, I would drink at an opening and then I found myself drinking to fall asleep. And then I found myself like not being affected by the alcohol anymore, but still drinking. And I was like, okay, sis, let's take take a (laughs) pulse here. Um, And I think you might not be an alcoholic, but you might be abusing something here so I stopped drinking last year around October and um, so I've maintained that until now and my body has felt a lot better and yeah I just realized I don't I don't need it Um, yeah congrats for that I know that's huge in in our very like social circle there's always wine at like galleries or wherever exactly yeah yeah Cool. Yeah, I've been trying to tap more into my self-care practice and just kind of have like a pocketbook of things that I go to whenever like I get kind of down. And what I was Mm -hmm. doing over this summer was biking a lot, just like riding a bike. And I love that so much. I would like listen to music and just bike for like an hour. And that was amazing for me. But now that I can't do that, I need to figure out, you know, other means to, to do self-care. I do therapy, but I want something also that's physical because that helps mm-hmm. me with stress. 
So, yeah, I think it's, it's super important to like figure it out, especially as winter comes and, you know, all of the shift in your body and just with the sun being not out as much, finding ways to do that, I think is so important. So I love all your. Let me know what you thank you. Let me know what you you figure out for winter movement practices. So that's something that I have I have been um, lacking in my life. Some kind yes. of daily movement. I will for sure let you know. I was thinking of doing like a Zuma, like a Zuma video at home and then mm. just like moving around to dance, but I have to find a good like Zuma class to take or something online. But I'll let you know if I find something okay. good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think the last question I have for you is to really just ask about what was your biggest lesson you learned so far? And I know a lot of your work deals with serving artists, but we didn't um, get too much into that. If you wanted to just talk about Eloise and like what you do there, like what your mission is there, and then any lessons you learned so far along your journey, that would be like so good to hear from you. Yeah, so um, Eloise, like I said earlier, was um, started last year. Um, I conceived the idea in March and I really started putting some feet to it last summer. But my goal was because I saw a gap in Chicago um, for an organization, an art service organization that was specifically for black and brown artists, up-and-coming artists, emerging artists, aspiring mm -hmm. artists. So the goal of Eloise is twofold. One, to provide financial resources for artists who maybe have been accepted to present at a conference. And it's not just artists, so I should say artists and arts administrators curators. Um, it kind of like is broad, but it's for um, the emerging group. But to provide financial resources for them to get to residencies, to get to conferences, things like that, or go on research trips. So a lot of times, and I don't know if people talk about it, but I know some artists personally who maybe have gotten accepted into a residency but the residency didn't provide like a travel stipend or scholarship. So they had to end mm -hmm. up declining it. So what I want to do is where possible, provide them with the resources to get there because there's so much that, but by not going that they might miss out on one, you know, having dedicated time and space to work on their practice, but also when you're at residencies, you have visiting curators that come in, you know, and those kind of it encounters could possibly lead to exhibition opportunities or visiting artist opportunities that are outside of Chicago. Um, and then the same for conferences, like, you know, that's really where you have people coming from all over the country, um, like CAA or something like that, College Art Association. You have people coming from all over the, comp the country to really learn about what's going on in the field. And so I wanted to be able to provide the resources so that artists, administrators, curators didn't miss out on an opportunity if, if one presented itself to them. Obviously that shifted with COVID. We allowed all those artists who had been granted funds for whatever their travels were, we just allowed them to keep it. And by we, I mean me, I don't know why I'm saying we. <laughs> I allowed them. 
I'll say me and my funder, uh, my funders uh, yeah. allows them to to just keep that, you know, uh, at the beginning of COVID. And then the second fold is like providing thought partnership to to young emerging artists, curators, writers. Um, and so the first program that I mentioned was the Career Growth Fund. And then the education program is the Career Growth Lab. Um, yeah. And so we also piloted that last fall, like around this time, actually, we piloted it. Um, and the idea was to bring in one guest speaker every month for these individuals to meet, to really learn, like we were saying earlier, learn about the different avenues that you could take within mm-hmm. the arts. So it's not just like if you're a visual artist, you can only be a visual artist. What if you're a visual artist that's interested in having a teaching artist practice? Like, right. how do you do that? What if you are an arts writer, but you're also interested in like programming? So we really wanted them. I really wanted them to see what the different avenues were that were available to them. And then in those sessions, I also provided meals. So I partnered with a brown woman to provide meals breakfast and lunch and also um, partner with Haji Healing Salon to start each session out with meditation and yoga. Um, Shout out to my sister, my sister Aya, um, the Haji Healing Salon actually just opened up a new space. So I'm excited uh, about that. I mean, yeah, so that's that's what we did. And we piloted it last year so that uh, it was easier for me to approach that experience without feeling like I had to have any definitive kind of outcomes. Well, there were outcomes, but like if the the course changed mid session or mid program that I would be okay with that and just see all of it as a learning journey. And then... Yeah, so we'll yeah. see what happens in go in 2021. I think we're going to take a pause. Um, I am working with a couple of the participants from that to continue to provide mentorship and connect them to different people in the community. Mm-hmm. A little less informal, but I offered that to them. Um, and then the other question you have for me is the biggest lesson I've learned so far. I think for me... The the biggest lesson I learned, I would have to say, is that to trust your gut and to trust your intuition when something doesn't feel right or when something does feel right. You know, the art world is like all about critique a lot of times. And so I think that while critique is helpful and useful, that if you're an artist and you have an idea or a concept that you want to see in the world, or if you're a curator and you have an exhibition idea that you want to see in the world, don't allow, don't allow a critique that you've already gotten or fear of critique keep you from actually seeing that idea out. I mean, yes. we all, we all fail <laughs> at mm-hmm. some point. And so that's, happen. that's the best way. Yeah. That's the best way to learn. And then also stay true to yourself because, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> that's what you have to come home to yourself. And can you be happy with yourself? Do you feel whole? Do you Amen. feel like you are like you are walking in your purpose um, and in alignment? And so I say just always check in with yourself. There's this woman that I work with so by day. I work at a, um, a foundation and there's this one woman, one of the program officers there said that 
um, she has this exercise that she does checking in with herself. And it's like a water, water dripping in a bucket. And she was like, so the water drips. If I feel like the water is like just dripping, you know, it's like, okay, things are kind of stable. I feel okay here. I feel like it's level. But if the water goes from dripping to just like pouring out of the faucet, that's Mm. my time to go. That's my time to get back to center. And so, like I said, trust your intuition, trust yourself. No one knows you better than you. I feel like mentorship is absolutely key, but the role of a mentor is not to change who you are, but to help you to be the best version of the person you already are. Oh, yes. That's what I got. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking the truth. Yes. I loved everything you just said about just being true to yourself, checking in with yourself. Yes, finding your purpose through what you already love to do. Don't try to force anything. I think that's Mm -hmm. so, so important, especially as a creative, as an artist, because sometimes, you know, with society telling us what an artist is or can be, it's really hard to not feed into that. So I think it's super important to just kind of tap into like your own power and your own intuition. And that's, that's absolutely good advice. So thank you for sharing that. And you're also your important work that you do with artists and Louise to really support the growth of artists and provide all these resources, professional development, um, and talking about just the the thing people don't talk about. You know, people always talk about sometimes not having opportunities or lacking opportunities. But I love that you are going on this other angle of okay, what if you have these opportunities and you can't afford to like move forward? Then what? Mm-hmm. No one talks yeah. about that. So yeah, that's so such an important need. So I'm so happy you're serving that. And let me know when you come back, girl. I want to support you in any way with Eloise. I love your mission there. I think it's super important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just want to thank you again for reaching out to do this, this podcast. Cause I've definitely been keeping tabs on what you're doing, you know, with the podcast, um, oh. with your dinner series, with your retreat. And I just want to commend you for walking in your own purpose. Um, and people, you, people see, yeah, people. And I think you actually recorded a video about this, but people think just because you do a thing that you're not scared, but like do it scared anyway. Oh my like, God. Yes. You know, and you don't mm-hmm. want to, to possibly miss out on that. So I just want to commend you and thank you. And I look forward to everything that you're, you're doing. Thank you. That means so much to me. I just wanted to give you an opportunity for people to connect with you, either through social media or through your website. How can people connect with you? Sure. Um, so I don't have a personal website and Eloise's website is a little bit like out of date, um, but we're going to get on that soon. Mm-hmm. That's part That's of this okay. time off, but you can visit EloiseArts.org. That's L-O-O-U-I-S-E-A-R-T.org. And then on Instagram, you know, not super active right now, but I tend to use our Instagram platform to post about different opportunities that are going on, residencies, writing opportunities, exhibition opportunities, things like that. And that's at Eloise Arts on Instagram. 
Yes. Check out Lakeisha Leak. She is amazing and super like relatable and easy to talk to. So reach out to her and get connected. Thank you so much for coming on. I love talking to you and let's keep it going. Let's keep in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much and um, enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Bye. Bye. See you next week. Same day, same time. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And send me a comment if you really like this one. And remember to uplift and support another woman creative today. Always remember to embrace your creative genius.